0: I want to take you back into the Gospel of Mark, and it's been a few weeks since we've been in here, so it's important that you understand where we're at at this point. Um, The the final chapters of Mark's Gospel tell this last week of Jesus' life very slowly, and we've moved into an incredibly slow pace um, in the telling of the story as we pass through the moments when the disciples celebrated the Passover meal together. Then Jesus led them out to the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed before the Father, knowing that his arrest and death would be imminent. And then, of course, the arrest has taken place when Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. And following this, he's experienced um, the first part of his trial, which was being pulled before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, which was made up of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And there he's been examined in a quite unjust way. And, of course, one of the side stories that's being told at the same time as Christ is going through these experiences and entering into hell, as it were, into the darkest moment of his life, one of the stories that's being told alongside that is of the failure of the disciples to stand alongside Jesus as he is emerging as this extraordinarily bold, courageous, and wonderful saviour who will take the, the burden of sin upon himself and drink the cup of God's wrath on our behalf on the cross, as Jesus is being exalted in this way, we're also seeing the frailty of humanity. As Jesus put it in the Garden of Gethsemane, the spirit is, is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so we're seeing the disciples fall away. And the focus falls upon The chief disciple, the chief apostle, the apostle Peter, who of all the disciples ought to have been the one who stood at Christ's side. But Jesus actually singled him out and predicted his fall, predicted his betrayal. And then Mark pays attention to what Peter is doing during these events. He pays attention to him falling asleep In the garden, when Jesus is praying, and Jesus being upset that this happens on three occasions and they can't even stay awake to pray with him. He pays attention then to Peter running away with the other disciples when Jesus is arrested. Then he he draws a focus to the fact that Peter is then sort of furtively in the high priest's house as Jesus is on trial before the Sanhedrin. Peter's there watching, but from a distance pretending to be a kind of disinterested bystander just warming himself by the fire like just 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 happens to be there like he's not one of Christ's followers but he just happens to be in the area so this is what's happened up to now then we come to this moment in the story when the lens very much focuses upon peter himself and we we come to this very dark moment in his life it says this from verse 66 of the 14th chapter of mark's gospel it says as And as Peter was below in the courtyard, Jesus is on trial in the house, and there's a courtyard in the middle of the house. He was below in the courtyard. One of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice you will deny me three times and he broke down and wept. Now before we examine the story and its significance I just want you to step back and consider the, the importance of the fact that it's even here recorded in Mark's Gospel. And I think this is a very extraordinarily important detail here. And you ask, why is it here? Mark is, the author, is a disciple of Peter, and Peter was the source. He was the eyewitness source of this account. And it seems that, therefore, it's a very deliberate thing that Mark draws attention to Peter, that Peter has told Mark this story and instructed, most likely instructed him to include it. And I think there are a couple of good reasons for that at the outset that we should be aware of. The one is that it teaches us the the fallibility, the failure and the weakness of human leaders. You will know perhaps the expression warts and all, that it comes from... um, a story about Oliver Cromwell, who was alive in the, seven, in the 1600s and became um, the sort of guardian, of, the protector of the republic when the, the, uh, the royalty was overthrown, and how when his portrait was being painted by Samuel Cooper, a great artist at the time, He instructed him that his portrait should be painted warts and all. He didn't want the kind of 17th century version of airbrushing or photoshopping to be done on his image because he wanted his image to be portrayed exactly and accurately. And if you look at the painting, you can see the warts on Cromwell's face, the imperfections. And Peter, and part of the reason was because Cromwell didn't want to be overly elevated as someone who's not just an ordinary man. He was an ordinary man. And the same's going on here. Peter wants us to understand that all men are ordinary, even the best among us, with the exception of Jesus Christ. This is one of the reasons why this story is here, because it shows the murkiness of the human heart and then elevates and exalts Jesus as the standout human. But Another reason I think it's important to notice is that if it shows the fallibility of human leaders, it also shows the infallibility of the Word of God. Now, many people have questioned these accounts, these stories. They've asked, can we really trust and believe what is written here about the life of Jesus and then of the death of Jesus and of the resurrection of Jesus? And it seems to me that one of the greatest reasons why we know we can trust these accounts as true and accurate and honest tellings of the story is because at no point ever do they attempt to paint the eyewitnesses in in, in rose-colored uh, tinted spectacles with a kind of with a glaze or a haze of a gl- warm glow around them as though they were anything but flawed people and therefore it seems to me all the more trustworthy that when we read these honest accounts of the failure of men like Peter we know that they are just telling it as it is this is the honest truth honest to God truth of what happened on that day that night the following day when Christ is crucified and then three days later when he's raised from the dead I see that this is one of the great reasons why I love and trust the Scriptures. That all the way through, there's this honest telling that there are no heroes in the Scriptures that are not portrayed fully and accurately with all their flaws and blemishes and their warts before our eyes. And it tells us that these are texts that we can trust. Now, despite this honesty, we also have to be aware that this is is the moment of greatest shame. In the life of in the life of Apostle Peter, I have no doubt about this. That when he looked back upon this moment in his life, I'm certain that again and again he felt a flush of shame, and embarrassment and guilt that would have afflicted him. Because this is what it's like, isn't it, when you've made a great mistake in life? And I think that Peter would have been conscious of this because of the friendship that he had with Christ. He was the closest of Christ's friends, it seems, or certainly in the inner three. And Jesus had not only loved him as a brother and brought him into his intimate friendship, but then he'd also trusted Peter with immense responsibility. He'd appointed him to be the chief of the apostles and the leader of the church as it would exist after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's been given great responsibility. And so of all people, it seems that Peter should have been the man who stood at Christ's side in the darkest hour of Christ's life. And yet Peter did not. And of course, you can't go through these moments in life without feeling afterwards an immense sense of reflective uh, sort of examination of yourself and awareness of your failing. And it's for this reason why I think the story speaks to us so potently. Even if we will never be in the precise situation that Peter was in on that night, all of us are conscious. When we look back on our lives to date, we're conscious Of moments of failure. We're conscious of moments that we feel shame about, that we feel guilt about, that bring a a blushing sense of guilt and a bitter regret, things that we'd love to go back and undo or to do over if we had the opportunity, but which we will not have the opportunity for. And this particular moment was that for Peter and I, I doubt that there's a person among us who cannot look back on those moments in our own lives Now, the reason why I draw attention to this and why I think it's so important that you identify with Peter's sense of shame and regret is because what we also see is a hopeful thing coming through in this story and in the wider account of Peter's life. That even though we know that he suffered this abysmal failure as he was subjected to a test, we also know and are very certain of the fact that Jesus was working out a purpose in Peter in that particular moment. God had purposes. And I say this because even before it took place Jesus has predicted that this would happen. He's drawn attention to this fact and he said you'll all fall away. This was just a matter of hours earlier that Jesus said this as they were having dinner. He says you'll all fall away for it's written I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And Jesus made it even more specific when he put it, highlighted Peter Because Peter had objected and said, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus had told him very specifically, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Now the reason why I mention that is because it teaches us this, that Christ knew that it would happen. I think we can even go further and say that he willed that it would happen and that Christ was working out a purpose in and and through Peter, in the moment of his failure, that he allowed him to be subjected to this test, he allowed him to fail the test, in order to work out his good and better purposes in Peter's life, as a result of this very dark, bitter experience that he was going through. And I say this because I think the same is true for each one of us. God is sovereign over the details of your life. You can look back on times when you've been through trials and tests. Some of them you've emerged out of victorious, and many of them you've also failed. And the hopeful thing which I think we have to see here is that whether we come through victorious or whether we fail, whatever takes place, we always know that God is going to work about, bring about his better ends and purposes, even in and through our failures. Now, of course, I don't think this is an excuse for failure itself. The Bible tells us very clearly, in fact, that when we are subjected to tests or trials or temptations, God does not want us to fail. For example, in 1 Corinthians 10, it says that no temptation, or the word is test, it can be interchangeable. No temptation or test has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he'll also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So the Bible teaches us that it is never inevitable that you fail. Never inevitable that you fail the tests that God allows you to be subjected to. But it also teaches us that even when we do fail, God is using these moments. That it's, as Paul says in Romans 8, that he's working all things together for the good of those who love him. And are called according to his purposes. And so the question that I want us to wrestle with is this. What are the purposes that God is working out in Peter, even in this dark moment? Why does he let him fail? What, what good does God bring about in and through Peter's failure? Because I think that the answers are universal truths. I think that the answers that apply to Peter's life apply just as much to you and to me in the tests and trials that we are subjected to in life. And I think they are of immense importance to us. And so I want to describe them for you. I think the first answer that we can see really quite vividly and obviously when we know the story of Peter is this, that the Lord will test you in order to humble you. That the first and great reason why the God subjects you to tests and trials in life is in order to humble you. That humility is his end, his goal and his, his object in your life. Now think about this in the life of Peter himself. Consider Peter. What do we know about him? We know but Peter is a man of immense gifts. He's a man with immense natural gifts and talents. He has a natural leadership quality that elevates him above his his uh, his fellow men. We know that he's a man with real boldness and courage. You see it, for example, in the story when he sees Jesus walking on the water. How he's the disciple. Who jumps out of the boat to go and, walk, and attempt to walk on the water towards Jesus. You see it similarly when Jesus appears in his resurrected form, and Peter's the first one out, jumping, swimming into the sea to go and see Jesus again and again. He's the one who professes the Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of of God. And again and again, you see Peter really distinguishing himself from the others. He's he's standout, and he's a man of great intelligence. You know this when you read his letters, one and two Peter, how. The subtlety of his mind and his, his understanding of theological realities comes through. He's a man of great ability, great courage, great boldness, great intelligence, great natural gifts. We also know about him that he had humble beginnings. When he's on trial or he's, he's being examined by the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4 along with John, one of the things that strikes them is they, say, they describe Peter and John as uneducated common men. So here's a man with great natural abilities but with few opportunities in life. He's taken, no doubt, he's taken his father's trade in becoming a fisherman. He's not had the privileges of education like others have. And very often these two things, when they come together, create a toxic mix, can't they? Of a kind of pride that's mixed with insecurity... That then presents itself as a bluster and arrogance and a need to prove oneself. And I think that this is what we see going on in Peter's life, how he has this this great natural gift, but also a bit of a chip on his shoulder that makes him want a little bit insecure and a bit of needing to prove himself. And it comes across as pride. It comes across as arrogance. Now, when you read the scriptures, one of the questions that you're you, you become aware of is that God has a way, or that God has ways of dealing with pride in our lives. And, and you, you begin to wrestle, with how, how does he do this? And again and again in Scripture, again and again in Scripture, whenever God sees and singles out a person for exceptional usefulness in the kingdom, when he wants to use a man, when he wants to use a woman, one of the things he does first of all is he humbles them, he breaks them, he kind, of, he kind of pulls them apart and bruises them and crushes them in order to make them useful, in order to make them, them humble, in order to be useful to him and his purposes. Now, I could, there are too many examples to tell you, but let me give you a few. I think the story of Joseph, who's very famous to us as the possessor of the Technicolor Dreamcoat, as it's, it's so often called these days, but really just a multicolored garment that his father had given him. How he was one of the youngest of the 12 brothers. And he was was given exceptional favor. His his dad loves him the best. And also he receives these prophetic dreams from God in which he sees his 11 other brothers bowing down to him. And what does this do to him when he's just a a lad, when he's a teenager? It inflates him with pride. It inflates him with a sense of self-importance. And then the, the, the major part of Joseph's story is the story of God breaking him. It's the story of God breaking him in slavery in Egypt. It's the story of God breaking him in prison in Egypt. It's the story of how God crushes him and bruises him and squashes him so as to smash his pride in order to, that, that a man might reemerge, who's been made humble before the living God and is then useful and becomes a savior, actually, of his own people. The same thing happens in the life of Moses. Moses is a man who inherits or finds himself in a situation of extraordinary privilege. He spends the first 40 years of his life in a palace with no pleasure barred from him. He would have had all the food that he wanted. I'm sure he would have had all the hedonistic pleasure that he could have imagined. And he grows up with a sense of privilege. And of course, what does this do? It brings about pride in the heart. So you see in Moses' story how one of the first acts that we know of his life is that he he tries to effect a kind of deliverance of God's people prematurely because he thinks he's great and important. And God crushes him by sending him into exile, into into the wilderness, makes him a a humble shepherd from being a prince in Egypt to becoming a humble shepherd for 40 years. And I don't think that this is a pointless episode in the life of Moses. I think that this is a, a very definite, necessary precursor to what would later take place, that God would use him as a deliverer. He has to break him. He has to crush him. He has to squash him in order to crush his pride in order that he'll be useful to God. The same is true in the life of Samson, another great story of a man whose pride is expressed in rebellion. He's answerable to no one. He doesn't even pay much attention to God's own laws. And there he is, inflated with pride. Why? Because he has this kind of God-given supernatural strength. And what does God do but humble him? when he's captured by the Philistines, when his head is shaved, when his eyes are gouged out and he's in a state of absolute brokenness and God has abandoned him. And it brings him to the point of, of, of cracking, of breaking, when he then cries out to God, God, this one last time, give me strength. And therefore, and he enters into his greatest moment in life when he, he, he affects um, his greatest sort of uh, conquest over the Philistines, even in his last dying moments. And you see this this pattern being played out again and again in Scripture. If God wants to use a person, the first thing he has to do is dismantle them piece by piece, take them apart, humble them, break them, crush them, and squash them in order to break that self-reliance and human pride. Now, think about Peter. How does Jesus regard him? We know he loves him as a friend. We know he loves him. He has a great affection for him. But we can also see that Jesus must have been aware of this self-reliant pride that emerges from Peter that really was damaging to his usefulness. How when Jesus had said that you'll all, you'll all fall away, and Peter answered, even though they all fall away, I will not. You know, he, he, he even thinks of himself as better than the other 11 apostles or disciples. So confident is he of his natural gifts and abilities. And then when Jesus says, no, you will deny me, he doubles down and says, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. There's such bitter irony in this story because it is only hours later that we know of this story in the courtyard when he denies Jesus in this particularly tragic way and how he totally crumbles. And you see him crumbling. What is God has to deal with this because self-reliance is the most dangerous thing in the Christian life. Self-reliance is the most dangerous thing in the Christian life. You can't be a Christian and be self-reliant and you can't go on in the Christian life based on your own gifts, abilities and strengths. You have to have reliance upon God. So what does Jesus do? To use a metaphor, he throws him into the deep end. He throws him into the end where he knows that he cannot swim, allows him to experience what it feels like to drown. And so you see this man coming apart here in this story. How first of all, when he's first examined, he lies. He says, I neither know nor understand what you mean. His reflexive reaction to the examination is to just lie. It just comes off his tongue because of fear, no doubt. How then he begins, it says, to invoke a curse on himself in verse 71, which means that he was... was Sort of saying something to the effect, you know, if, I, if I'm lying, may God strike me down. That's what it meant to, 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 to swear and to invoke a curse. And then just to seal how thoroughly his fall, how hard he hits the ground, it, it, I should say, how, how, how totally broken he becomes. He then says, I do not know this man of whom you speak. He, abs- he actually denies Jesus. And I just think, you know, you cannot understand this story apart from Christ allowing this man to be subjected to the crushing blows of a test, of a trial, of a temptation that that essentially breaks into pieces, humbles him to the ground, totally pulls him apart. It would seem to be unkindness, wouldn't it, that the Lord allowed this to happen to him. But I want you to understand this is not unkindness when God allows it in Peter's life. And it's not unkindness when he allows it in your life. It seems to me that if self-reliance and pride are our greatest enemies in life, that whatever God allows us to experience in order to break our pride is a good thing and not a bad thing. Even if we fail the tests and trials that he allows us to experience, even if we're broken and we fall apart in the way that Peter did, how he lied, how he cursed and swore, and then how he eventually denied the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord may be breaking you is what I want you to understand. If you're conscious of tests and trials going on in your life, the Lord may well be dismantling you and breaking you for his greater purposes. The Lord will test you in order to humble you. Now this brings us on to a second great truth which is evident in Peter's story but I think is also universally true in ours as well which is the kind of positive side to this, which is that the Lord will test you in order to prepare you for more. Now, I think this is very clearly true when you look at Simon Peter. What does Jesus want of Simon Peter? What does he want for this man? He does not want him to to end his discipleship to Jesus in this moment of abysmal failure. He doesn't want him to fall into the gutter and never to emerge from that place. He doesn't want that at all. Jesus invested three years of intense discipleship into this man and entrusted him with the leadership of his church. So we know that the test and the trial that he's enduring on this particular occasion has a purpose and that the purpose is to prepare him for what is yet to come in Peter's life. Now, I think this becomes very evident when you take a step back from this particular story and understand the course of Peter's life as it would bear out in the years to come. And one of the truths that I think you'll see if you know Peter's story is that this particular trial that he went through, this test that he experienced here when he denied Jesus, is actually not the most difficult test that Peter would face in life. It certainly is perhaps the darkest moment that he would go through because he failed it. But it is not the most difficult test that he'll endure in life. And you think about the things that he would face later on. Here in the courtyard, all he has to do is give testimony before a few witnesses. Within weeks, he'll be preaching to a crowd of thousands. Here in the courtyard, he's still a free man. Within weeks, he'll be imprisoned. And he'll experience multiple imprisonments in the course of his life when he'll be um, when he'll be arrested for his witness to Jesus Christ. Here, there's no immediate threat to his well being or to his life. Not really, not realistically. It's only a kind of guilt by association with Jesus. But we know that ultimately Peter's life will end becoming a martyr for Jesus. So if you ask me to compare this particular moment with the moments that were to come in his life, I, I would say without hesitation that the later t- tests and trials that he went through were, were indeed worse than this particular test and trial. So then it becomes very important for us to understand uh, how does a person get prepared for, for greater responsibility or for darker moments or for deep, more difficult trials in life in the future? How does, how does God prepare us for things that are to come? How does he strengthen us? How does he equip us? How does he put character into us and develop us And the answer, obviously, is by allowing us to pass through lesser trials, by training, by formation that takes place through experiences, some of which we succeed in and some of which we fail in. And it seems to me that this is a universal truth in life, in all of our growth and development and education. It's true when you think about your schooling. You know how think about how you learned mathematics, how it started with the ability to count you, know, you could count one to ten, and that was difficult the first time, but eventually you got to twenty and one hundred, then you learned addition, then subtraction, then you learned multiplication and division, and eventually you, perhaps you made it all the way to the glorious heights of trigonometry and algebra and, and standard uh, deviations and all the rest of the stuff that i 've completely forgotten now. But, you know, you see, it's, it's a universal truth in life that we move from the easier to the more difficult, that we pass through successive trials in order to prepare us for what is to come. And, in fact, this is, this is something that's just so widely recognized that it's, it's considered a truism. I've been reading this fascinating book, um, The Coddling of the American Mind, in which the authors Jonathan Hayton and, and uh, Greg uh, Lukianoff are charting one of the, the very... Um, dangerous developments is taking place among generation Z, as I described, the younger generation that's just emerging. And the great danger that's, that's, that's there is that there's a way of thinking, of believing that actually uh, suffering and and exposure to danger and risk and trauma in life are bad for you. And they say that, look, right, from a psychological point of view, this is absolute nonsense, that actually humans only grow through experience of danger, through experience of of suffering, through experience of of risk, and that um, it's actually through pain that we emerge and grow and develop character and fortitude and resilience and learn and good mental health, which is the very opposite of what is actually now becoming increasingly common in our our way of thinking. And one of the, the strands that they pull upon to evidence their case is they say, look, this has been understood in all the major religions all through history. And uh, I think it's certainly there all over the place. But they, they bring this wonderful quote from a Confucian uh, philosopher from four centuries before Jesus who said this, When heaven is about to confer a great responsibility on any man, it will exercise his mind with suffering, subject his sinews and bones to hard work, expose his body to hunger, put him to poverty, place obstacles in the paths of his deeds so as to stimulate his mind, harden his nature, and improve wherever he is competent. And of course, this is something that we see not just in Confucianism or in any other religion. We see it also in our own faith. We see it all through Scripture. That one of the things that God does when he wants to prepare people for greatness is he subjects them to tests and trials in life through which they grow. And I've already given you examples of some characters, and I think we can see it in their lives. You see it in Moses, for example. What was Moses' great role in life? It was to be a shepherd of God's people, Israel, to lead them through the wilderness for 40 years to prepare them for the promised land. How does God prepare him for that immense test and trial? Well, he lets him be a shepherd for 40 years with actual sheep and goats in the desert. And I I think these two things are not accidental coincidences. They are a a lesson for us of how God puts you through lesser trials to prepare you for greater ones. You think about the life of David. What is he known for? He's known for that great act of heroism when he stands on the battlefield facing the giant Goliath and, uh, and he, he, he wants to know who it is that defies the armies of the living God. And in his zeal and passion for God, he strikes Goliath down with his sling and stone. But you see, how was David prepared for that great trial? And the answer is obvious when you know his story. Well, he was a shepherd boy and he would frequently encounter wolves and bears and lions in the, in, in, out in the hills. And it's through slaying lesser beasts that he is then allowed to face the greater beast in life. And this pattern just plays itself out again and again in Scripture. It's even there in the teaching of Jesus, how he teaches us that he who is faithful in a little will be entrusted with much. Jesus is saying that this is a law in nature and a law in God's ways that if you are to be prepared for greater things in life, you must pass through trials. You must pass through pain. You must pass through suffering. You must pass through temptation. And so it seems to me That when you think about this particular moment in the story of Peter's life as a whole, this is part of his apprenticeship to Jesus. Jesus has not finished with him. He wants him to experience this test, this trial, in order to teach him invaluable truth. God is preparing him for the things he would face in the years to come. And and, and that's the kindness of God. And so it calls for reflection in the trials that you may be facing in life. You might think that God could use you and promote you and elevate you to positions of usefulness without letting you experience suffering. And the answer is absolutely not. God will allow you to experience things in which you feel like you cannot cope, in which you feel like you're in over your head, in which you feel like you're drowning. And this is his kindness because he wants to strengthen you. He wants to Put sinews into you, wants to develop your spiritual muscles and your faith and in your endurance and your character and your, your ability to be content in all circumstances, your ability to have joy in all situations and to rejoice. Now Christians who are, exhibit that did not arrive there by accident. Ask any of them. They always arrive through the pathway of trial and test and suffering. All of them. And so it means that we can think about our own lives, perhaps even right now, What's the hardest thing that you're facing now? And what's your attitude towards it? Are you receiving these experiences as from God, as a moment, as an opportunity to grow? What's the temptation that keeps coming back to you even now? Are you tempted to be complaining? Are you tempted to blame? Are you tempted to indulge in some lust or some sin? What is a temptation that keeps presenting itself to you right now? Understand that this is a test that God is preparing you, he's developing strength in you in order that you can be uh, more useful to him in his kingdom. What is it that you're afraid of right now? What makes you feel anxious? I think if you examine the thing, you'll probably recognize that it's quite a small thing. Very often we're anxious about very insignificant things in the grand scheme of things. Well, God wants to strengthen you. He wants to develop courage and faith and fortitude for the greater things in life. Now, I, don't, you know, I, I actually think that Peter came to see this with total crystal clarity when he's writing to Christians decades later and those Christians are going through their own trials and temptations he can say to them in this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there we see it. Peter understood that God breaks you down through the tests and trials that he subjects you to, but he does it in order to prepare you for greater things in the future. If you want to be of use to God, if you want to do anything for him, God must subject you to these experiences and will do so in his fatherly kindness in order to prepare you. And this brings me to the last point. The Lord will test you in order to teach you His grace. In order that you understand His grace, in order that you feel His grace, in order that you know His grace is before you and in front of you, behind you, and all around you. Now, what do I mean by grace? Now, of course, we understand grace in Peter's life here, primarily in the fact that Jesus still loved him, even though he failed. But I actually think that's too narrow a view on the thing. If you consider Peter's story as a whole, you begin to see... The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is is there before, during, and after this particular trial. And I want to show you some of these things so that you can understand the grace of Jesus in your life right now. We see it, first of all, in the fact that Jesus has been praying for Peter. In you know, when Jesus predicted his fall, the Passover meal, Luke gives us a couple of other details. He says how Jesus has said this to Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now, there's a very interesting detail here, which is that when he said that Satan demanded to have you, he uses the plural you. He means all of you disciples. But then Jesus says, but I have prayed for you. And he uses a singular. He's saying, I have prayed for you specifically, Simon Peter, that you may not fail, that your faith may not fail. This is grace even before he enters into his test. Jesus is praying for him. Even ahead of time, and I think perhaps it's the prayers of Jesus that mean that Peter did not lose his faith entirely. There's another aspect to this, more detail that John gives us in his gospel, that same night the night of the Passover meal, John records Jesus' lengthy prayer in the 17th chapter of John's gospel. And here's what he keeps saying in this prayer. He keeps reiterating that I is praying for his people. He says it in John seventeen nine: I am praying for them. i not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. He says again in verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. He says in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Here he is praying for us as his people. And then it becomes even more specific to you. He says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also, meaning the 12, "but, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, all God's people in the running centuries that would follow this night, you and me. The grace of Jesus is for you in this, that he is praying for you. This is one of the great truths that we believe about Christ's work on our behalf, that he is our intercessor, that he prays for you before the Father. He's praying for Peter and he's praying for you. Another way you taste his grace is in this, that he will not let go of Peter and he won't let go of you either. And I say this, it comes through again in Luke 22, when Jesus has said to him, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And then he says, and when you have turned again or when you've repented, strengthen your brothers. So Jesus is seeing the whole episode even before it takes place. He sees how Peter will experience a test and a trial that he will in fact fail. But he's saying that, I pray for you that you won't fail in an absolute sense. That you won't commit apostasy. And also he knows that he's going to repent. He says, when you have turned again. Jesus sees the end of the story even before it's taken place. He sees that Peter's going to be restored and made whole. And it seems to me that what we're seeing here is the grace of Jesus, that he'll give you enough leash, enough room, as it were, to stumble and trip and fall, but he'll never let go of you completely. He even anticipates your repentance before you've failed. He he knows that you're going to turn again to him. This is the grace of Jesus. What an extraordinary truth this is, that he sees our failures before they happen, but he also sees us on the other side of that, coming back to him, wanting him again, repenting, being regretful and sorrowful of the things that we've done wrong. Here's another way you see his grace. You see it in the fact that he rebukes Peter. Now, I ask you this question. What is the worst possible condition that a Christian can find themselves in through test and trial? And the answer is that you can fall into sin to a point where you no longer feel guilty. Paul describes this very vividly as having a seared conscience. You know what it is to sear meat? It means to burn it. And when you have burned skin, what happens? That your nerves die and, and, and no longer function, that you can no longer feel sensation where you've been burned badly. And the worst possible condition that a Christian can ever be in is when they are, their conscience has been so burned, so seared, that they no longer feel any guilt. But this does not happen to Peter. You saw how, having just denied Jesus three times, it says that he, he heard this rooster crow again, and it says, Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Now this, I want to suggest to you, is the grace of God. The grace of God in in the fact that even when you stumble and fall, the Word of God will convict you and you'll feel a conscience, sometimes just a faint flicker, sometimes a mighty blow. You'll feel your conscience and the guilt that you feel is the grace of God to you. Luke tells us also that at that particular moment when the rooster crowed, remember he's, in the same, he's on the same premises as Jesus who's in the trial and they obviously are within sightline of each other. Luke tells us that the Lord turned and looked at Peter. This is the grace of Jesus. He looked him in the eye. The prediction of Christ's own words came back to Peter's mind and in that moment his conscience is broken and it says he broke down and wept. Friend, whenever you experience grief, On account of your sin, on account of failure in your life, whenever you feel like you're broken and you feel so crushed by the weight of what you've done wrong, understand this, that in that moment that is the grace of God to you, that your conscience hasn't been seared, that you still have the ability to know right from wrong, and that Jesus therefore has given you a pathway out, out of that failure. And then we see it last of all in this, That Jesus restores and recommissions Peter. I don't want to go into this in any kind of detail, except to tell you this. That at the end, you know, I I doubt that anyone in the world felt more grief than Peter did on that particular night. I doubt that anyone's ever felt worse in in their, their entire lives than how Peter felt on that particular night. Totally broken. But we also know that when Jesus was raised from the dead and the angel appears to the women at the tomb, the angel instructs the women and says, and and tells them, do not be alarmed, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen, he is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. You think that's just an insignificant detail, it's anything but. The other Gospels tell us more about the restoration of Peter. But Mark's just telling, look, even when Peter had failed, Jesus did not disqualify him. He didn't let go of him. And in fact, just that very mention of his name was enough to say, Peter, you're back. Come back in. Come back into the fold. You're going to be re- entrusted with the responsibility that I'm preparing you for. You may have failed, but now stand up. This is the grace of God to you, praying for you holding you fast, rebuking you when you fail, but then picking you up, restoring you, bringing you back to, onto your feet so that you can run and walk with him. Friends, I want to close just by saying this. We can see God's grace all over Peter's life in this, but I think that if you ask the question, what ultimately does God want to bring about in him, it's really summarized as this, isn't it? He wants to bring about dependence Peter entered into this test full of self, um, self-reliance and overconfidence in himself, and he failed. But he emerges out the other side, a man who knows his own weakness and therefore knows how to walk in step with the Spirit and draw on the power and the grace of God every day so that in the future he won't fail again. And this is the Christian life. This is what it means to be a Christian. To become a Christian is to be broken to the point where you realize you can't stand on your own feet before God. You need the righteousness of Christ as a gift to you. But to go on in the Christian life is the same thing being played out infinite times in your life to come. God wants to break down self-reliance in order to build you up on His strength and His grace and His power and His sufficiency, His love and mercy towards you. That is the Christian life. That is a lesson Peter had to learn. And that is what you must learn when you're pe- passing through tests and trials. It's what God wants to instill in you. But why don't we end by coming back to God in worship and prayer? I want to invite Peter and Peter Nats to come and lead us in a responsive worship. But I'm going to pray for you and with you as we come to God now. Father, we are so conscious, Lord that we face these kinds of tests and trials in life and time and again we have not acquitted ourselves well. We grumble. We feel self-pity. We blame others. We indulge the flesh. We get into bad patterns and ways of thinking. Again and again, Lord, it seems like even though you love us with an unfailing love, Lord. We are so fickle and we do fall away so easily. Lord Jesus, I pray that you'll teach us the lesson that comes through Peter's failure. I pray you'll teach us your unbreakable love, your grace, your desire for us to shape and form us through the hardships that we face, so that we will emerge different people, people who are always rejoicing, who are content who trust you in all circumstances, who have an irrepressible spirit because we have the Holy Spirit living in us. And I ask this in your precious name. Amen.